No my Heidi my Kitene Hortaka. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. I'm Susanna Leyatawa in for Wallace Chapman today. Our panelists, Cindy Michener and Martin Bosley. Thank you both for being here today. Great to have you. Now we've got some feedback in so far. Uh, not a lot of support for Super Bowl, so you're not alone there, Martin. Oh, this is from Abby. Abby in Otago. Oh, I think that's what she means by the combination of letters there. <laughs> Super Bowl, boring, too much media coverage of this, completely irrelevant to New Zealand, yep. other than thinking I'm glad I don't live in the USA. Mm. Point well made, Abby. Well Hi, made. I love sport, but gave the Super Bowl 15 minutes of playing time before turning it off. It is boring to watch. No name. And Andrew says, totally agree with Martin. I'm a big NBA fan, and at least basketball is played the same way here, mm. so I can understand what's going on. Yeah, well said. Now, also, listeners, please tell us what your go-to potluck dish is. Potato salad, for example. We're talking about that later and welcoming your suggestions, recipes, and obviously looking forward to your thoughts on that, Martin. Yes, I'm allowed to better play be good, game? Martin. <laughs> Am I allowed to play? Can I play? Yeah, of course you can. Of course you can, but just not yet. Not yet. Okay. Now, a year on from the devastating impact of Cyclone Gabrielle, so quickly on the tail of Cyclone Hale over Auckland anniversary weekend and covering a swathe of the North and South Islands, the districts, and I am going to name them, it's important we hear Every name. Whangare, Kaipara, Hauraki, Thames Coromandel, Waikato, Gisborne Tairawhiti, Central Hawke's Bay, Hastings, Napier, Wairoa, Masterton and Buller. Those are the districts and the city of Nelson and the Auckland region. There were six regional states of emergency declared at the time. Joining us now from the Public Health Communications Centre, Otago University Professor Nick Wilson, who has co-authored The Long Shadow of Cyclone Gabrielle, a review. Kia ora, Nick. Kia ora. So Cyclone Gabrielle, the most costly weather-related disaster in New Zealand's history. Take us through, obviously briefly, but and thank you for tolerating the brevity of our programme, take us through what the review tells us we need to know. Sure. Well, we looked at the long-term impacts, so up to uh, a year after the disaster, and really there's three big areas, the ongoing disruption to people's lives and the stress from housing-related damage. There's also the ongoing disruption to lives from the persisting infrastructure damage, such as damage to roads and bridges, and also the ongoing economic impacts from traffic disruption, damaged farmland, and closed tourism sites. So really uh, still a wide range of impacts, but particularly in terms of uh, mental health will be the housing-related damage with still thousands of displaced people living in temporary accommodation, such as camper vans and cabins and friends' houses. And that's you know reflecting the you know around 2,400 yellow-stickered houses still needing repairs and people can't uh, live in them. So that's a lot of uh, uh, disruption that people are still uh, enduring. We haven't got much in terms of formal surveys, except uh, there was a survey of Napier residents uh, showing 66% uh, reported negative effects on their mental well-being, people mentioning anxiety and depression. But there's also uh, interviews with people suggesting they're still suffering anxiety, particularly when there's uh, 
storm warnings and they're still living in uh, flood zone areas, for example. So really all this sort of, to sum it up, we, we really need to understand this better with a national level inquiry into the impacts and response at uh, central and local government levels. So unfortunately, the government's really wasting a learning opportunity not to have any inquiry for what is a $14 billion disaster. We really need to learn from this. And that learning will go in through, you know, helping us uh, think about more resilient infrastructure and also inform issues around things like managed retreat, from, you know, for people who are still living in uh, areas that are prone to floods and slips and, and sea level rise. So, Nick, have they said no to the inquiry or have they just not said yes? Yeah, they've said nothing. There's been very small uh, uh, specific inquiries at the local level by some councils and there was also the inquiry into uh, the slash problem in Tairawhiti. But... This, this is very unusual because for nearly every big disaster, there's been an inquiry. Uh, in fact, every single disaster since World War II that's killed over 20 people uh, has had an inquiry. And that's often led to big safety improvements and uh, new uh, regulations and uh, other uh, system changes. So but Nick, this Nick. is very odd. Nick, don't you think that actually it is pretty simple? Our infrastructure is not resilient enough. We are building in places which we now know over the years that we should not be, that, I mean, you know, managed retreat and investment in infrastructure. Some of the costs of these inquiries when if you actually sat down and said, okay, this is what's happened, how do we stop it again, that we'd be a lot better off putting our resource and our effort into ensuring that we minimise the damage because this these weather events are not going to stop. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, we some of these uh, lessons are very, very simple. We need better infrastructure. We need to stop building in uh, floodplains. But unfortunately, this, this still seems to be happening. Councils are still permitting houses to be built in floodplains, even after Cyclone Gabriel. So there, there is an advantage of an inquiry that focuses the politicians' and allows for some long-term perspective because often after these disasters where there's no inquiry, there's just a sort of immediate response and then the long-term lessons are not embedded or uh, the, the proper funding streams are not uh, put in place. So, you know, given this is, you know, even a $10 billion disaster, if you have a $1 million inquiry, that's 1% of 1% of the cost. It's just such a tiny fraction of resource to have a focused look at this, this issue. Look, I, I mean, I, I, I get the need for, a, for, for an inquiry on this, I really do, but as someone who's involved in local government, the, the glacial speed with which some of these government departments operate at to try and get some of these things fixed is 
more than a little frustrating, right? When you've got residents who just want things sorted out to start going, well, we should have an inquiry for this and an inquiry for that. They just want their houses fixed. They, you know, they want their roads fixed. And I think this, this comes back to a really simple thing. It's a chronic lack of investment in infrastructure for decades, which we are now paying the price for. And that needs to be sorted out before we get on to you know, an inquiry, which sometimes just ends up in a who, who is to blame fest. And I don't think that's that's really that constructive. You know, we talk about, you know, I've driven that Napier Taupo road several times since um, since Gabriel, and it wasn't until the first time that I drove that road afterwards and saw it for myself. You know, until you actually see something like that, that utter devastation that is there, and how people's lives have been completely and utterly wrecked, do you have a comprehension of just how big this is? Um, and I'm not surprised that you know we've we've got people who have anxiety when the rain falls on the roof, especially if you're living in a caravan. You know we need to get on and fix it. That's my that's just my not really a question or well, yeah, a statement. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, we do need a lot of resource to fix these things. I mean, I'm living in Wellington, and the the water <laughs> water infrastructure is yeah. just leaking all it's over just leaking the place. It's so, everywhere. I mean, we're so seeing yeah, it now. We with do the, need to fix Nick, a question just to finish, Nick, and obviously it's a big conversation, so this is a a sampler, if you like. What information is missing for you to do the work that you're doing? Like When you talk about an inquiry, I understand that that will be a way of gathering together information. Is there a simple summary that you can point to about the information that's still needed? Well, I think the uh, uh, look at the... Uh, level of resiliency that's built into infrastructure so that when a bridge is built, it, how how robust is it? When a water system is built, how robust is it? For example, the the pipe to um, taking water to Gisborne, it didn't just break in one place in Cyclone Gabriel. Mm. It broke in 10 places. So we, we need to have a careful look at the level at which we design things so that they can really have a much higher chance of surviving future weather-related disasters. We don't need an inquiry to tell us a pipe that's broken in 10 places is not actually... Up to scratch. For purpose, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, you know, we've got you know, two our bridges there, Nick, and it's like, you know, bridges that were built 60, 70 years ago for, for trucks that were going to weigh 30 tonnes. Well, now we've got trucks who weigh 60 tonnes going across these bridges. They were never designed to take that weight, you know, like we're, we, you know, we, we've not given any sort of forethought here as to, you know, as to potential, you know, potential um, catastrophes like, yes, we, like yeah. we've experienced. We're going to have sure, to leave we that there. Sure, we have an epidemic of short-term thinking. Absolutely. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> here yeah. we go. From that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. Professor Nick Wilson, the co-author of The Long Shadow of Cyclone Gabriel. He's from Otago University, based in Wellington, RNZ National. It is uh, coming up to 19 minutes past four. This is the panel with me today, Martin Bosley and Cindy Michener. Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters says the Cook Islands proposal for seabed mining is seriously good-looking and those against it need to wait for more information. Mr Peters has just finished a tour of Cook Islands, Tonga, Samoa. It included giving $16.5 million to tackle the impacts of climate change in the Cook Islands and $15.2 million to SPREP, that's the Secretariat of the Regional Environment Programme. Surveying for seabed mining is underway in Cook Islands waters. Their Prime Minister Mark Brown says he plans on protecting the Cook Islands against climate change through seabed mining.
we wanted to know how do we regulate seabed mining. So to discuss, Professor of Law Joanna Mossop, specialising in the law of the sea at Te Heringa, Te Heringa Waka Victoria University of Wellington. Tēnā koe, Joanna. Kia ora. How significant is it for the Cook Islands to be surveying the potential of seabed mining in their waters? Um, The Cook Islands have been really interested in seabed mining for a very long time. Uh, They've been looking at this for um, for several decades now. Um, Essentially, the process that they're going through at the moment is exploration, and that's the stage before any commercial mining of of seabed minerals would happen. And essentially, they're trying to discover a whole range of information, including um, how extractable are the minerals, what are the environmental conditions where the minerals are located, um, and any sort of physical um, environmental factors that might impact on the, the mineability of it. So how long does an exploration phase last? Well, I believe that the current um, permits for the Cook Islands are around two to five years. So what, what actually are they mining for? What are the in-demand minerals? Well, in the Cook Islands, they're focusing on polymetallic nodules. And polymetallic nodules are small um, golf ball-sized or potato-sized nodules that essentially sit on the seafloor. They've been formed by the accretion of minerals out of the seawater for, for thousands, if not millions of years. Um, and so they contain a whole range of really valuable minerals, including cobalt, copper, nickel, and manganese. So just, they just what you need for your electric car. <laughs> Is that so, what it's used for? Electric yeah, cars electric and car, phones. Yeah, electric car batteries. That's where it goes, right? Wind farms and batteries and electric cars. Yeah. Is, is that right? Where 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 is the destination for the um, you know manufactured form of these uh, minerals? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. That um, the move towards a greater use of batteries is definitely behind the increased need for some of these minerals, um, and that's certainly one of the uh, reasons why proponents of seabed mining are very keen to see that take place. Um, obviously, the opponents are focused much more on the environmental impact of the mining process. Joanna, what's New Zealand's position on seabed mining? Well, New Zealand um, has a position on international seabed mining. So we have to understand that there are different rules depending on where the seabed mining takes place. The mining in the Cook Islands is in their exclusive economic zone. And so the um, Cook Islands have the right to decide what goes on within that um, in relation to resource uh, ex- extraction. Beyond um, the EEZs of countries is an international waters essentially and there's an international seabed authority which creates rules and regulations for mining in, in that area and at the moment there's a very contentious set of negotiations where states are trying to come up with regulations that regulate the exploitation um, stage, so the process of commercial seabed mining. Um, New Zealand has joined a number of other countries in calling for a conditional moratorium on the mining, commercial mining, until there is in place um, good environmental controls and the regulations, and we have more information about the environmental. <coughs> oh, call me an old sceptic, Professor Mossop, but um, you know, we, humans don't exactly have a great track history when it comes to this sort of thing. And this, I don't know, it, it kind of feels to me this is like the new Wild West, it's the new gold, it's 6,000 metres down, no one's going to really see the damage that's being done. It feels like, you know, climate change might be the excuse ahead of this is actually going to be good money. Right or wrong? 
Yeah, look, I think you're you're pretty accurate there. I think that, first of all, this is a new activity. We Mm. haven't had commercial-level seabed mining at all, really, in um, underwater zones, especially the deeper waters. Um, And so we're still really feeling our way in terms of how the technology will work and what the environmental impact will be. So I think um, we also do need to acknowledge that there are countries for whom, you know, they don't have a good economy. They're looking for money. And I understand Mm. that the Cook Islands um, government might be saying, well, we need money to adapt to climate change. And this is one way that we can grow our economy. So I think you have to remember that there are a whole range of different influences and forces at play in the discussion. And it is a very a heated discussion taking place internationally at the moment. What do we know about environmental protections in the act of seabed mining? Do they exist? Well, it depends again on where you're um, conducting the mining. So within exclusive economic zones, really up to the government um, to decide how it will um, put in place environmental protection. There are certainly international obligations to protect the environment, but there's often a lot of leeway for states to decide how they're going to implement that. Um, I ha- just very quickly had a look at some of the um, material around the Cook Islands exploration, and there's certainly a lot of talk there about trying to find baseline information about the environment so we can actually understand what impact this is being had in those areas. And until we actually do that commercial mining, we're really not going to be sure exactly the extent of the environmental impact. So it's a a very difficult situation where you haven't done any, so you're trying to guess essentially what the impact will be. Uh, Professor Mossop, is it it true that most of the research has actually been sponsored by the, uh, is it Odyssey, the uh, mining company that's undertaking the exploration? I don't know a lot about the details behind the companies. Um, What what often happens is there are a, a number of companies that might be based in a, a number of different places. But I understand that it's a US-based company. Yeah, and they're, they're suing Mexico at the moment because after some considered investigation, the Mexicans backed out of a promise to allow them to do it. And the outcome of that is still um, pending. Still pending. Sure. Um, I think partly there it's going to rely on the documentation and what was actually said in that documentation. Yeah. I think companies would be very um, well placed if they don't make any promises that they say we're giving you the permit for exploration at the stage and we'll make a decision once we have all that information. And I, I suspect that's probably what happened in Mexico, but um, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. Just to close, Joanna, how does New Zealand's position on seabed mining influence the rest of the Pacific region, nations in the Pacific? Do people follow what we're doing or not doing? There's an enormous amount of uh, scrutiny on states' positions on seabed mining at the moment, largely because of what's happening in the International Seabed Authority. Um, And the Pacific is a really interesting place because some of the Pacific Island states are very against any form of seabed mining, while others are really keen for it to start. So um, what New Zealand says is important. We've made a position about the international mining, but New Zealand has um, carefully said nothing about um, what it thinks of seabed mining within national jurisdictions. So unless the new government wants to change that, that's the current situation. Thank you very much. Great speaking with you. Thanks, Professor. Professor of Law at Te Heringa Waka Victoria University. That's Joanna Mossop. Well, it's time for our our 
chat about what you take to a potluck dinner or a shared lunch or whatever else you're being asked to bring a plate to. Uh, let's see. Potluck equals fish and chips, says one texter. Sure. Surefire potluck dish. Southland cheese rolls. Never actually eaten one we've taken to or do. They go so quickly. That's from Scott at St. Helier's. Dumplings, another person has texted in. Shall we just go to Martin straight away? Oh, that's not fair. Oh, okay, no, no, no you go first, Cindy. Fair. Martin, <laughs> hold fire, hold fire. Cindy, tell us quickly, what well, is it? Martin may, may wish to take my idea. That's why I have to go oh. first. So I... <laughs> <laughs> Stop laughing. Couscous. I take, you know, Ooh, you get the packets. Couscous. Okay, of couscous, and they've got uh, little apricots and currants in them. So I put more apricots and currants and um, feta and mint and basil on the top and lots of black pepper and a bit of lemon juice. And everyone thinks it's quite flash. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mart? I'm impressed. Uh, you could add some pomegranates and some sumac and say you got it from Ottolenghi. Oh, I could. Okay, I'm just writing that down. (laughs) No need. Okay, your turn. Come on, go. Um, I've got it. Scott with his little Southland cheese rolls there. I love a Southland cheese roll. That's good. But when I do mine, I add little chunks of crayfish into it, which takes it to another level entirely. It's kind of like crayfish mornay in a bread roll. But before you go any further, Martin, Mm. do you feel the pressure when someone says potluck? Are people looking at what you are bringing? Yeah, I once took a packet of Tim Tams and a bottle of whipped cream. Yeah. <laughs> just like enough already. Just like, yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, don't worry, um, Boz has got it. Um, in summer, I take ikamate, like coconut marinated fish, oh, uh, right. which yep. everybody, That's everybody my loves. Go-to. Yeah, yeah, that love is it, my right? Go-to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is that also called ceviche? Yeah, and it's uh, also called yeah. orca, variations orca, yeah, of. Yeah, variations right. of, yeah, okay. poisson cru, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and in winter, I do braised beef cheeks with like a parsnip mash or something. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Because it's just easy. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, well, it always sounds like it's complicated, but actually the oven does all the work. I just, you know, chop up some vegetables and braise some beef cheeks in it. Listen, before we go but to the headlines, like mm. so when you're making a decision about braised beef cheeks mm. and a bowl of mashed potatoes, mm. like how do you decide on quantity? Just enough for Martin. Yeah. <laughs> are there other, uh, sorry, is there, are there other people going to be there oh, at this potluck dinner? I, um, um, well, I mean, one beef cheek will do two people. So got just, it. Yeah, okay. You know, and I figure we've got, oh, we've got about eight people coming over for dinner. I'll do I'll do four or five beef cheeks. Easy. Easy. Yeah. Okay. So beef cheeks are cheap, right? They're they're, they're they're a, you know, they're not an expensive ingredient to do. So it's like you know, and, and they're easy to cook. People say, oh my god. Do they match? You see, potluck means everybody brings something, mm. and some of the potluck organisers will say, Corn you chips. do this, you oh. do that, no, who's you, on do this, you do the who's juice, on dessert, on dessert. Yeah. and others will just say, bring something. Mm. And so, I mean, what happens if everybody does beef cheeks, Martin? Then oh, where well, do we go? Well, yeah, they're, 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 yeah. Then you're in trouble there, that's for sure. But equally, you know, you're eating well for the next 10 days. That's, you know. You know. <laughs> um, I love taking if it's, like, if it's like an afternoon thing, chicken club sandwiches. Oh, yes. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. mayonnaise yeah. Celery. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Lemon zest. Old school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Before Cindy, we go, it. before we go, just John's texted in. John, single bloke, this is his description, mm. lives on a boat. And so he does portobello mushrooms fried gently in butter with a teaspoon of sweet chilli sauce on top to melt through as it cooks. Yep. He could join and the And he goes Patico. to the cheesecake shop and buys a lemon cheesecake. Yes, he's in. Single he's in. bloke. Yeah. <laughs> Single bloke. Come on, compatico.co.nz. Bring a plate. You, you sound perfect. We are wrapping we, this up. We are wrapping this up. Do you launch it's... party with uh, yeah. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.